0: Next up
1: on 69.420 FM Nice Radio, it's, it's Death, Death by DVD. After
0: a quick word from, from Linnea, Linnea I'm Linnea.
1: And I like Death by DVD. It's a statement.
0: this is death by dvd i am your host alexander nash and with me as always is my co-host and if you like him now you're gonna love him later hey wait a minute is it if you like him now you're gonna love it later is it or if you like him now you're gonna love him later it's hank watch my tit you slut oh we'll get into that shortly it's death by DV time and we're doing another series of movies, half of a series of films, in fact. Not the whole series. We're just doing the first half. Will we get to the second half? Debatable on my end. Hank wants to. I'm not as excited about it as he is, but sure, maybe. It's venturing
1: into the unknown with me for the the next part of the series, and I think that's truly what's got me excited. But we'll be honest right here at the beginning. The initial three movies that we're going to talk about truly are the core and uh, what carries this series. The bustiest of the series, I think. I mean, are, are we saying it? Are we going to announce it? Are we just holding until? Well, after? we got—we
0: oh, the suspense needs to build, Hank. We've got to do our uh, recently seen.
1: Yeah, uh, okay. I, I was just making sure I didn't want to, you know, premature ejaculate.
0: Oh no, no, no. Yes, we 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 need to uh, tease the balls of the audience a little bit. Just a little tease. And maybe get
1: the pinky in the butt a little bit. You know, open up some doorways here because we're gonna get sexy in a little bit. I think, I mean, sure. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to be appropriate or not, but sure, maybe. I don't think anything is going to be appropriate uh, as we get deeper into the show. So am I skinning this puppy first? I'm not going to stop for using it. that reference. Peter Weir, 1975, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock. Peter Weir, the wonderful man that directed The Cars That Ate Paris. That's the movie I'm going to lead with and because that's the pinnacle of his career to me. Uh, I hadn't heard of this movie before, but I was aware of the story. I had read it on one of those clickbait articles, you know, 10 creepiest disappearance stories that takes two hours to click your entire way through and probably loads a shit ton of viruses on your phone. But I'd read the story before. It's a group of schoolgirls that go missing in 1900's uh, Victoria. I think it's Victoria, Australia. They go missing at this uh, very infamous rock, um, hanging rock, hence the title, and the movie surfaces sort of like... Ah, uh, to use a term I really dislike—a Lynchian feeling, uh, ooky, spooky, atmospheric uh, horror movie, more or less than anything else. It's billed as a thriller, but it certainly has a lot of, you know, what I would say are, are quintessential, almost Hammerish uh, horror aspects to it. It's very lovely. It's it's just delicately and beautifully shot. It's very stark contrast in colors, and you know, you're you're working with Australia, so a lot of brown and faint greens and it just is very enchanting and visually is is one of the highest points for this is something to just really dig into and enjoy watching but the story itself was uh, I wouldn't say hard to follow the way it's presented and, and uh, given to you is intentionally hard to follow and it is very dreamlike, you know, uh, just to keep dropping fucking bourgeois film references. Uh, it's very Fellini like it's got kind of an Italian dreamlike feel to it. It's just it's very pretty, but it is a bit hard to follow. I think it it's was also recently... like
0: from what I've seen, of it, I've never actually sat through the entire movie. It's shot kind of like a 70s porno in a lot of ways. Yes. And I'm not trying to say that to, like, you know, to, to shit on or anything. It's got the, the, the Vaseline cam.
1: It really, yeah, everything is very blurred. There's a soft vignette to to almost every scene and shot outside of, um, you know, very big close-ups on, on what's going on. And the movie's filled with close-ups. Whenever somebody's speaking, whenever somebody is uh, getting direct attention, no matter what, it's, it's somewhat um, like a soap opera, but a very well-done soap opera, again, not trying to lessen the movie because it's it's one of the most renowned uh australian films one of the first major produced australian films so it definitely has a a lot more than in this weak little review that I've given it. But it was fun. I found it on the Criterion channel that I love so very much. And, um, you know, honestly, I'd give it a four out of five. It's a fun venture. And I believe it was recently remade for Australian television as a miniseries. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't know how it would work. Uh, it was, it's not, a. What, what's the runtime here? I don't think it's a necessarily long movie. An hour and 55 minutes, sorry, it is. Uh, it, it didn't feel an hour and 55 minutes. So I'll give it that much. Not a lot of dialogue, very whimsical. And to use again, the term I hate, if you like Lynchian, David Lynch kind of feeling movies, *Picnic at Hanging Rock*. Find it. It's like PG thirteen. I mean, everyone can watch it. It's very mystical. I don't think it's. Uh, oh, there is some references to uh, rape, so uh, there could be some trigger warning things there. But so maybe not perfect for everyone. Still, perfect for almost everyone.
0: Well, I got a lot of Peter Weir's movies, and he's made a bunch of like world renowned films over the years. He made *The Truman Show*. He made *Dead Poet Society*. He made *Witness*. Um, yeah, much more than prob- The Cars That Ate Paris but I just really i am fond of the like movie I like that one, yeah, I really like The Cars That Ate Paris as well uh, but my favorite, I don't know if you've ever seen it my favorite Peter Weir movie is probably Mosquito Coast it's got Harrison Ford in it and uh, um, River Phoenix, right? yeah, yeah I love I, that movie I've I not seen great. it in
1: many years but it, uh, from what I remember I like River Phoenix so I don't think I'd say anything bad about anything he's done because I'm a biased bastard
0: it's one of uh, Harrison Ford's best performances because he like gets to play like shithead really well in this movie and just complete and utter like asshole but a loving asshole all at the same time it's a very strange movie the the concept of it in itself is strange but if no one's seen mosquito coast so i try to track it down it's a really excellent film
1: you know even though his appearance in the conversation is is very slight i think that's one of my favorite harrison ford roles just because it's so emotional and that, you have that last scene with robert duvall where he's you know accused of wanting bad things to happen. And I don't know, it's, it's... The smaller, I think, roles for Harrison Ford tend to end up being a little bit more impactful. Like, even in Apocalypse Now, that that very brief, uh, but albeit strong scene, it just worked. You don't forget it.
0: Well, well Mosquito Coast is probably his best, like... Lead performance. We'll put it that way. I mean, he does well in small performances and stuff, but I mean, he gets to do a whole range of shit in Mosquito Coast where he's. He plays just like lovable psycho so well. All right. So, uh, when to go into to my recently seen Hank. Why don't you shoot, cowboy? Uh,. So I watched on the Shutter Network. Daniel isn't real. A new film from what? What the hell is Elijah Woods' production company's name? Is Spectrevision? Spectrevision, Spectre Vision. Spectre Vision. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they've put out several horror movies in the last like five, the six Color years. The Out of Space by Richard Stanley. And they've done some really good stuff. I mean, they like they're they're like on for the most part on par with something like A twenty four of having like a really great catalog of films, especially like they really do focus on horror and genre. Um, I did not like this one as much as I've liked a lot of the other Spectre vision films. Um, so the, the general plot that I, I, won't try to spoil anything for you, um, is about a kid with an imaginary friend who the imaginary friend talks him and like when he's like six years old, the imaginary friend talks his kid into doing something very bad, so, um, he decides to lock his imaginary friend in this, like, dollhouse, basically. And he doesn't let him out. He just keeps going, like, through life, and he become, like gets to college age, and, uh, it gets to a point in his history, with a lot of other things going on in his life, that he inevitably lets his, uh, imaginary friend out, who's played by, uh, was oh, it's Patrick Schwarzenegger. It's, uh, it's Arnie's kid. And, um, Arnie's kid plays a pretty good sleazy creep. Not too bad, um... Although towards the end of the film, he gives a, uh, he starts reminding me of, uh, what's his face? Uh, Eric from silent night, daily night two. What is his last name? I cannot remember the made the lead dude from, uh, silent night, daily night two. I keep wanting to say Eric Carr, but I know that's not right. He was a um, kiss. Um, but anyway, so here's where the, like the movie is shot really excellently it has a lot of style, and they put a lot of energy behind that style. Their performance, for the most part, are pretty good. And like the premise is a little empty. And I'm like, okay, is this going to go anywhere? Eric so Freeman. What? Freeman, Eric Freeman. Aha. Okay, there we go. Eric Carr was a drummer for Kiss. Yeah. Was, uh... That's... <laughs> uh, but anyway. Which um... one was
1: he? Was he the Fox? Yes, he was the fox. he was the fox. Yeah, and he's he's dead. the guy who died. He died. Yeah, rest in peace, Eric Carr. This this is for you. This episode's dedicated to the memory of Eric Carr from Kiss. <laughs> sure, why
0: not? But um, but through all that, like style and um, there's very little substance to it because it does break away from just like this imaginary friend thing, but not really adequately as far as my taste goes. It just kind of flounders for the most part. And then towards the end, it just kind of gets into highly ridiculous territory. And even the performances start to suffer. It's like the first half of the movie is pretty good and I'm behind it. I was a little bored at first because it just, I, it didn't seem like it was going to go anywhere. And then where it goes is not special. And it gets really ham fisted and cheesy. I shit you not. This movie ends with a fucking sword fight. So it's, it ends up like the first half of it feels kind of like somebody who's trying to emulate, um, like a Nicholas Winding Refn sort of situation and then it ends and it feels like Wishmaster 3. Ooh. So, yeah. Yikes. Yeah. It That's gets really kind of and you know, a lot of the effects don't aren't pulled off very well. A lot of the CGI effects are pretty poor. Uh some of the uh, makeup effects are pretty poor, but they do do a, a fair amount of like special makeup effects. It just I don't think there really no really knew where they wanted to go with anything. And they just kind of haphazardly wrote this kind of ending to it. And it's just like, eh, it kind of, uh, you know what movie reminded me of and not to like bring like rehash old wounds. But, um, it reminded me a lot of something like, uh, the Ranger. Cause it, it just felt sort of the not same way of like, big. you got a lot of good stuff going on here, guys, but, your script needed some more polish and you needed to understand like where your story was going. But at least with the Ranger, they didn't like their eyes weren't too big for their bellies. They didn't try to do like some stuff they couldn't do on the budget that they had. And then Daniel isn't real. That's they start doing a lot of weird shit that their budget can't handle. And it just turns out being kind of cheesy, but a lot of it, it's pretty in a lot of, a lot of the time as well. So overall though, I would say it's, it's kind of a miss. I wish there was a rating between two and a half and a three out of five. So I guess it's a a two and three four stars out of five.
1: We're getting intense. Yeah, I've yeah, been I avoiding mean, this movie just... for a couple of days, or since but whenever it, it came out. I read the synopsis and haven't, you know, it, it didn't seem like something I wanted to sink 90 some odd minutes into, so I suck. I'm sorry.
0: Well, it's just like, like, Schwarty's kid does a really good job at the beginning. And then when he's asked to play a little bit more arch and villainous, he really starts to feel like Eric Freeman. I mean, he starts like, he kind of looks like him and he kind of starts working his eyebrows too much and starts getting really over the top of his performance when it's just like, this isn't working. And the director's young. I'm pretty sure this is his first film. So, I mean, I'll, I'll let some things pass because you got to understand I don't think he understands his actors quite as well as he will in the future. I think he's getting there, and I think his next film will be much better than this film. But at the time, it's it's more of a miss than it is a hit for me. But it's not terrible. I don't know if I'll ever sit down and
1: watch it now. A I fucking <laughs>
0: sword fight, Hank. I,
1: sometimes that's up my alley. I mean, I love Highlander. John dies at the end. That didn't have a sword. Not fight that in it, kind but... of
0: sword fight. Yeah. it's not
1: quite that well choreographed. I don't. Why did I say John dies at the end? There's no swords in that, is there? No. No. Yeah. There's there's a slew of weaponry, but I don't think there's any swords. Whatever. There's some ridiculous shit, regardless. I, I because I can see what you're saying, and that was kind of my first thought as you were describing this was like you know John dies at the end seems like a similar type movie, but you know you were. I wish it was more now. like John
0: dies at the end, and I would have enjoyed it hell of a lot more.
1: Well, that's a shame. Uh, regardless, you know, don't judge on me not probably seeing it. You, the adoring audience, watch Patrick Sorscher overact a little bit.
0: I don't know. It doesn't sound completely awful. It's not completely awful. It's just it's one of those things where I can see like a fairly fresh director getting. My problem is my opinion is biased because when you see people. Like, um, and I, I'm going to pull something out of the hand can for this one. Like a Jeremy Sonier come up with something like Blue Ruin. Ooh. Like, well, that was his second film, right? Yes. I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. And you see how, like, apt his hand is and his control of the material, which in Blue Ruin is not much material. It's a very basic story, but it's how you tell that story that's important. And that's what makes Blue Ruin amazing is because how they tell that very limited story. This movie has... Way more crazy shit going on, but they just don't know where to stop. And it just like you're you've let this get out of hand. You need to like you need a little bit more control over this, especially your story.
1: Well, that's something like um, you know the movie that I had referenced, the Peter Weir film. Style and substance and tone is something that really, really helps drive a movie, even if it's slightly confusing or a little bit dense or what you would consider to be dense subject matter. And something like Blue Ruin was literally funded. I think they used IndieGoGo. Just on um, you know shots, photographs that Jeremy had taken of of uh, Megan and, and the surrounding area in Delaware, and they shot a little bit of footage at the boardwalk, and that's what sold it on tone alone. So I mean, you know, if you're out there making your own film, you probably should find another podcast like Filmmaking Sucks uh, to listen. But you know, my biggest suggestion would be focus on tone. Your story and all that matters, but if it looks like shit, it's gonna. Well, so they had
0: know, some good tone. They just broke that tone. That's the most disappointing thing about it. The beginning of it had a lot of great tone, and then it just kind of like, eh, I don't know, this story is kind of going... like It's, it's an example of style over substance. They really shot like high on that style, and they achieved it to some extent, but they also failed a little bit to, on that, and that made the story seem that much worse. Well, you know something
1: that I definitely feel is oozing with substance and style?
0: Got my pistol in my pocket,
1: it's and Mites baby, Academy. you
0: can cock it. I think that was a
1: good segue. Did I, for once, in, in 11 years of the show, I segued somewhat aptly into the subject matter of tonight's wonderful show. I've been looking forward Here's to Here's how you segue that. Tits. Um, Titties. Oh, well, only uh, two, two tits a movie, you know, and you had to cut. We'll get into all of this later. Oh, we'll get into that. I've got definitely. some breast facts. I've got some, some fun trivia. I have set and had Rick Sloan in my head for the last, what, three days or so? I've been working doing this for three More than days. More that,
0: it's been like five days, dude. You've been fucking with this.
1: Yeah, I've, I have I went ahead. Well, I, I think I said it once, but we are going to be discussing, we referenced at the beginning of the show, the first three, the Vice Academy series written, directed, and produced by the great Rick Sloan. And I went ahead and got a copy from Vinegar Syndrome, which is now gone, sold out, out of stock, and will not be reprinted of Vice Academy 1 through 3, and boy, was it worth every fucking cent. Uh, For one, it came out with a great dual-side poster of Ginger Lynn Allen and the wonderful and always awesome Linnea Quigley, and two, it had fucking sweet commentaries on all three discs, and... um. It's just so fun to see these movies remastered and in great quality. It's just such a treat. And I'd only seen, admittedly, the very first Vice Academy. And I saw it very young on USA Up All Night where this was the number yes. one movie on USA Up All Night when they did the B-Movie Awards. It it took home, I think, the the movie of the year or whatever the, the equivalent was that year. I'd seen Vice Academy and it just, you know, that was it. I saw Vice Academy and I don't. I really don't recall having ever seen the other two. So it was just a blast to sit down and, and watch both of them. And I hope we have as much fun uh, talking about them um, a- after our intro, which I, I think was a-, a better intro than the Resident Evil ones. We didn't have a lot of fun with that. <laughs> we we didn't have a lot of fun, but we're gonna get uphill from here. It's go. It's gonna be an oddly fun show to, to say. It should knock on wood, I'll fucking curse
0: it. We'll see. We'll we'll see about that, Hank. Um, I've already cursed way too much. I saw, again, I saw the Vice Academy films, especially 1 and 2, because they played those endlessly on USA up all night. And this was a film series that... Well, that's why 3 got
1: made, because they they played 1 and 2 so fucking much.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's why Part 3 was the highest-budget one, because USA, basically, it was almost like a made-for-TV movie. I think I'm um, um,
1: uh, just paraphrasing Rick here. I think Part 2 had almost an equal budget, but according to him, most of it just didn't appear on screen. And when it came to Part 3, which we'll get into in a little while here, th- they just wanted some different things. And I'll, I'll try and not shoot my wad with all my, my like four facts I
0: have. <laughs> uh, but... This was one of the very few like films and film series because USA Up All Night was broken into kind of two sections almost. Because Friday night was hosted by Ron DeSheer and Friday night they kind of tended to focus a little bit more on comedy and like sexploitation films like Bikini Car Wash Company and things like that. And on Saturdays it was hosted by Gilbert Godfrey. And they kind of focused a little bit more on horror. Um still some like still comedy at the same time. But they didn't show as many of the, like, the sexploitation, like, basically titty flicks, the Cinemax titty flicks on Saturday. But Vice Academy would inter- intertwinedly play on each of the nights, so it really didn't matter. They And they played probably at least twice a year on USA Up all night. So I saw these movies a shit ton, and then I eventually rented them because I wanted to see them uncut. But oddly enough, it really, they don't cut that much... They didn't cut that much out of the, some of the nudity, and that was about it. Well, like that's, and that's language. That's Rick
1: Sloan right there. Uh, a lot of the language was cut, but if you watch very, very carefully, all scenes of nudity don't have dialogue in them. So he shot them knowingly with what was going to happen. So anything you're truly missing, and I think per movie, you get uh, two breasts. You might get more, in, in the first film, I'm not.
0: I didn't count. Boobs. It's not wall to wall, definitely. Yeah. And what's what I've been kind of like contemplating this week is what Rich Sloan managed to achieve with at least the first three films in this series. Um, they're kind of, and I know I'm going to get called out for this, but they're kind of feminist sex comedies, which is a rare thing, especially for the time period of the late 80s, early 90s. I have something to completely interject, which furthers this point. Um, I I
1: was watching an interview provided by Vinegar Syndrome on the disc with Linnea Quigley, where she discusses, and this is, I think, the first time I've ever heard her bring this up, why she is so comfortable with nudity. Her father was a doctor, and to her it was always just you know, scientific. It, It obviously is scary and frightening when you have to get nude and you just want it to be over as quickly as possible, but it was never some... Uh, super sexual deviant thing, which is somewhat funny because her character Dee Dee is, you know, the, the sex vixen sort of character. And she's always got that, uh, you know, wave of, you know, oh, it's the chick from Return of the Living Dead sticking out her clothes again, which absolutely is not Linnea Quigley. It just to her was something very natural. And it had nothing to do with, you know, being some horny hot chick in the 80s, despite the character being so. So I really kind of, you said even before the show, before we were uh, talking, that there was something I might not agree with. And if it was that, I'm kind of with you on it. Well,
0: I don't know if it's what you agree with. I just don't, I don't know how many people would, like, let me stay my case, though, about it. Because yeah, shoot the it. women in this are objects of, you know, sexualization. But they hold the power in their sexualization. Because, and mostly, like, you go into a Porky's, you get into a lot of these sexploitation films. They tend to get kind of rapey. They can't tend to get with you, like a lot of men trying to lose their virginity or applying a lot of pressure towards women to have sex with them. And it's usually the man who's in control in the situation, the sexual situations in these kind of um, sex comedies from that era. But when it comes to Vice Academy, the women have all the power. They're the powerful ones in this series. And the men are like unilaterally considered to be perverts most of the time.
1: Well, part two is a little sexist, but they give it back to him at the end. We'll get there
0: when oh, we yeah. get there, but still.
1: I'm still with the I mean, agreeance agreeing It's on
0: commenting it. on it, at least. It's not just like, yeah, I mean, women ain't good for nothing but this. And, like, the women, like, anytime they have sex in these films, they're mostly the aggressors. They're the ones who are wanting to be, like, somewhat sexual. It's not just, like, a very kind of rapey situation, which is a lot, like, if you go back and watch a lot of these 80s sexploitation things, that's what they feel like in a lot of cases. It's just, you know, you... Applying pressure through drugs, they're drugging women through um, like like mind fucking them. That's that's like, you know, the soup du jour for a sex comedy. Well, the well not even these, that. I mean, there's a,
1: a great deal of just date rape humor throughout most of the movies yes. that you're describing, like get her drunk, get to second base, do whatever. There's a lot of not I mean, beyond inappropriate humor, just uh, absolute rape jokes. And I mean, I, to an extent, uh, Linnea kind of rapes a guy in the first movie.
0: A little bit, but he's a willing participant at the same time. I wouldn't consider that to be a rape because she also, I mean, um, she had had sex with him earlier in the day. Well, <laughs> and Also, mind we'll you, it.
1: it's an entire Tracy Lord situation. There's so many layers to this onion, and it's, it's bizarre. And I was joking even before we did this. Out of all the shows in the last few months, what did I have to take notes for? The Vice Academy series show. I have three pages of notes back-to-back on this just from... And, and none of it's like, you know, uh, we're going to get into some hardcore political conversation about, you know, the, the science behind all of this. But there definitely is a lot more to what some could consider barbaric caveman dick and fart humor. And I, I definitely
0: don't feel it. kind of breaks that
1: trend a little
0: bit it as really far does. as like a sex comedy goes.
1: It has a lot more atmosphere and, and, oddly, a lot more brains behind it than you would genuinely give credit for something like this series. And I think when you look at it for the first time, something, I'll, I'll compare it to Rollerball because this is a, a problem with the show that I've, I've had. We did a, a big Rollerball episode and people just don't want to listen to it. And what I get back is it's not because it's possibly political, guess what it is, because it's fucking Rollerball. It's because it's rollerball and everyone's concept on it is it's this big, dumb sports movie and that it's two hours of sports violence and it's monotonous and that
0: it's... it has almost nothing to do with sports.
1: <laughs> yeah. And that's the the really hard thing is people have this concept and this idea in their head. And when you make a movie that has not even necessarily gratuitous nudity, but uh, perhaps people that are known for nudity, like Vice Academy stars Ginger Lynn Allen, who was a hardcore porn star. When you have that atmosphere, people take things for such a, a shitty, skin-deep level and they don't want to evaluate anything. And and I'm not saying there aren't dick and fart jokes uh, all throughout this series, but that's not entirely the point. And what's even more so bizarre is, is just the, the continuity as a writer and director that Rick Sloan has with his characters, the development of the characters, where they go, their stories, despite being this you know, quote-unquote dumb, bimbo, goofy series, everyone actually has a really well-written character with kind of heart and soul that you kind of get an affinity for, and you start, you know, even by the mid of the movie, you start rooting for certain people, and especially the first film, you develop favorites, and you got to throw that with out with the bathwater because the favorites have to change. But the series itself is, one through three specifically, what we're we're discussing and focusing on, is oddly... It's definitely inappropriate, but it's oddly heartwarming, and it it really has, and this is something I, I picked up from Rick Sloan. It it has a kind of TV comedy feeling to it, uh, something like Married with Children, that you've got a, a very light feeling to it. And despite Police Academy, you would think being the the title ripoff here with Vice Academy, it's more of um a Charlie's Angels thing. That that's really where it comes from. Charlie's Angels, the Brady Bunch, uh, Batman to some extent. It's it's definitely um, reflections of somebody's love well, it's definitely love not reality and yeah. we're not
0: even playing with reality in this film series because well, let's just go ahead and get into the first one. Well, um, I think Rick Sloan really loves it's...
1: TV and that's something that's really prominent with his work and even his work previous to this and things like Hobgoblins that like golden age television, 60s and 70s TV, family comedies uh, really shows off in his work. I mean, there's even a weird Brady Bunch feeling to the the Vice Academy series. It's, it's all there, especially with uh, part three, because we're going to have fake Jan.
0: Well, the characters are definitely a lot more arched than uh, like a, a typical kind of sex comedy, I would say. They're a lot more on purpose, over the top in a lot of ways. But in the in the first film, you have... They're like wrestling heels, you know? They're like personas yeah, for, for wrestlers. Um, in the first film, you have Ginger Lynn Allen who I thought at the time, like, when I was on USA Up all night, there was no internet, and I was just like, oh, she's a really cute girl, she doesn't get naked in this, and then, like, I don't know, like, she just seems kind of, like, prudish. Boy, was I fucking wrong, I just didn't know who Ginger Lynn Allen was. That's the ironicity <laughs> um, with
1: it all right there, and some of the beauty behind it that, you know, it's... it's. I don't want to say the biggest diva on set, but, I mean, she truly was, and um, I think it was the first commentary, I'm just going to lay reference to this and keep bringing up Vinegar Syndrome... Uh, on the way to set, there was a, a, a Ginger Lynn Allen, I think her last hardcore film showing. So everyone on the way to set had to drive past this theater with a giant Ginger Lynn Allen billboard displaying, you know, whatever hardcore butt stuff she had done for that last picture. Because she hadn't really done a lot of, um, you know, quote-unquote regular movies at this point in time. No, this, I
0: think this was her first real... I mean, she had shown up as maybe, like, a new double and some stuff and some things like that and showing up in a little bit parts. But this is like for, and she really for her to be as like connected with this film specifically. Um, she's not in it much. She probably has like 10 to 15 minutes of screen time maximum. She's not a, very much a main character in it. And she's um, your
1: least favorite when you're going into Vice Academy. I mean, I don't care what type of scream queen fan you are. If you don't love Linnea Quigley in this movie, something's wrong with you. Well, Linnea
0: demonstrates again in this film her comic timing, which is kind of brilliant at times because, I mean, really she's what makes at least this first film really work is just the fact that she does have such a, a goofy personality and just such a sense of comic timing. And
1: she's got deadpan humor that just doesn't stop. It doesn't matter what the situation's in, and some of them are just absolutely ludicrous. And what we're dealing with here is, as you know, I referenced, you've got kind of the police academy feeling. You've got a group of girls and one token guy, which I thought was one of the most hysterical jokes in the entire movie. And it, it instantly made me think of, like, at high school, there's always that one fucking dude in, in the all-girl class. There's always one guy that tries out to be a cheerleader. There's always something like that. And I, I, I really appreciated that as a joke. And the fact that we follow the character throughout the entire movie and, and it's somebody you can almost relate and rely on. Is it but,
0: Dwayne? Is that his name? His uh, character's name?
1: I think, yeah, Dwayne. Ken Abraham? I believe it was Ken Abraham. Because I can only
0: Dwayne. remember, was it, I think it's Karen Russell who plays um Dee Dee's friend. I cannot remember her character name. And she's only in the first film. But I just remember her like screaming, Dwayne! Yeah. Dwayne! And then they're Over- in the car
1: again. listening to. Um... God, what was the name of that band? Severe Tire Damage. Rear Tire Damage. What a great name for a band. It, uh, it's, it's, a- uh,
0: it's a thing in the 80s with really bad heavy metal like fake band names. They would call it Severe Tire Damage.
1: Well, we've got this uh, incredible group of characters that are all in the Vice Academy. I mean, the movie starts off with Ginger Lynn Allen uh, busting a, a Coke deal, and it's just ridiculous. There's, there's absolutely no realism to it, and apparently Vice Academy means you have to wear um, the... Sluttiest dress as possible all all of Ginger Lynn's clothes were provided by herself um i, she, I don't know she had a great concept of what this was was going to be about uh, i think
0: <laughs> kind of what they're leaning towards plot wise and i might be wrong about this but um like the fact that Dwayne's the only person in the class i think they're kind of specifically doing like they're training these girls to be undercover prostitutes.
1: Well, this is where one of the greatest quotes in the movie fucking comes in, though. No pimp is gonna wait an hour for his whore to get her face on. <laughs> I mean, there's some fucking class A dialogue in the in the very, on all of them, really, but the first movie I, I is... I
0: do love Miss, uh, was it Jane Hamill playing Miss Devonshire? Yeah. I, I do love her in, in this film series, at least the one she's in. We'll get more into Jane Hamill as the series progresses, especially in part three
1: where she's lacking, and that's our uh, our fake Jan moment, but she, she really makes it for me, and I, I enjoy Enjoy um fake Jan. I have no problems with her really, but the the very first movie, she's definitely, you know, the the very stringent, prudish character that just can't stand what's going on. And you know, so you've uh introducing our cast of characters, Linnea Quigley, Gingerlyn Allen, and um was it Shawnee was Karen Russell. Uh yeah. And I, I I don't wanna say she was a porn star, but she very well might have been also That's...
0: I think she was a softcore. There's a trademark that I don't think she did series. any hardcore porn.
1: I mean, there's a lot of characters throughout that you'll encounter through the series that did hardcore softcore. And it's not that that fucking matters. Uh, we're just kind of giving credit to, you know, their body of work. Well, it,
0: a lot of it has to do with Hollywood at this time period, because there was a weird at this level of filmmaking. You had um, Dave Dakota you had Rick Sloan, you had people like that, Fred Olin Ray and they were well, all like interchanging film. actors, and some of these actors might be in hardcore, but some of them might just be in these cheap um, Hollywood-made movies like Linnea. She never really did any hardcore, but she was in tons of these movies for like these three specific directors. She's I don't know how many movies she's done for those three specific directors. Well,
1: that's how Linnea actually got the gig. She didn't have to try out for this. It was just through that click of friends in the circuit, the, the Dave Dakota circuit, pretty much, that um, you know, he, uh, Rick Sloan, had had interest in using Linnea, got in contact with her agent, and she got the script. She, you know, had heard from other people he wasn't a weirdo and, you know, didn't do anything that uh, put, pushed boundaries, wasn't a bad guy. So she agreed, did the Did the work. And, you know, the, the very first Vice Academy, I think most people will, will say is their favorite.
0: Uh, I disagree personally.
1: We'll get there because I disagree too. I think we are on the agreeance of, of our favorite is probably part two. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we're 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 in agreement with that one, but there is just such a, a bizarre. There's almost a childlike innocence to this weird, explicit film. I I think we were uh, in the midst of explaining what was going on here, but at the the, the at the core of this movie, what is it? Uh, what it is about is these women are going through the Vice Academy. So. You know, I long story. Fucking, it amounts
0: to like a small obstacle course training on weapons, and to graduate, you have to get some arrest. That is not how police academy works
1: whatsoever. They didn't even shoot at like a local high school or something, that was a dog training park.
0: (laughs) That completely makes sense. Yeah, it was a dog
1: (laughs) training park, and no one was acting in that scene. Everyone was truly struggling to, to get through it. I think what gives a lot of problems to the series and movies, and what people. Uh, Would take its skin value is, you know, most of it is very tight clothes, obvious, you know, hard nipples showing in every scene. It's it's very it's as, as much skin as you could get onto a network without having to cut anything. But at the same time, there's a bizarre amount of character development and just hope. Like, it's it's a genuinely, like, you don't think that Dee Dee's going to get shot in the fucking head. You know, you don't think Holly's going to get gang-raped by a bunch of bikers. You know that there's a level of believability and non-believability. But you start developing hope for these ditzy characters that aren't quite plastic. You know, and uh, going back into things like Porky's and even, like, the Angel series, uh, which I think Vinegar Syndrome also has released. None of, all the characters are just odd archetypes. Um... Like the Substitute series, by the time you get to like part two, part three, it's just, you know, put a do-rag on them and, and put a teardrop under their eye. They're a gangster. It doesn't matter. Some 35-year-old balding guy. There's no believability to who your characters are. There's nothing you can get in touch with. And despite being a, a, a almost entirely female-led uh, cast, you get like this weird backing to like the dd Dee Dee character linnea quigley you believe in them you want them to you know win the weird date rapist that was having sex with
0: underage kids um that's the one thing they kind of gloss over in this is like linnea ends up kind of getting into a quote-unquote relationship what are you gonna call it with uh, a porn actor named chucky long
1: chucky long
0: and um because that's what they're like to graduate they're trying to bust this um porn studio because they're an underground uh was it a uh, a child porn ring? Yeah, and it's kind of what, played what for is 19 1989
1: she... 1988 so this is a big Tracy Lords thing you know that's the whole statement on and what's funny is um Rick wanted Tracy Lords for one of the movies but Ginger would refuse to work with her so it ended up not happening I believe... uh, we'll... it's part 3 I'll talk about that later but uh yeah I'll talk about that later never mind sorry
0: it gets weird though cuz like what they're trying to bust this for is they meet this uh this girl named um cherry who was 15 years old and the porn studio knew cherry that pops. and you gotta you gotta say her full name man cherry pops cherry pops and it was her uh her uh exercise video she wants to get out of the porn game and get into exercise videos beefing up with cherry pop or something i can't remember i don't remember uh, the details of that i wish i did now uh, she do-
1: eventually goes triple platinum oh yes with her exercise video um, i think it but... was
0: beefing up with chucky long was the joke toward the end yeah, of the movie that... yeah But, like, Chucky even makes a joke of, like, I never thought they got above, uh, or got, yeah, got above 18. When she turned 19, I thought she was only 18. Yeah, like, he was just basically saying, yeah, I've had sex with a 15 year old. I'm cool with it. And Linnea, kind of, throughout the film, chooses not to arrest him because uh she's like sexually interested in him. The truly problematic subject matter is the love interest
1: is somebody that regularly has sex with admittedly children. Admittedly Yeah, has admittedly had sex with minors. And on camera and enjoys doing so. So that is but uh, it's it's addressed. It's addressed by the other characters. It's even addressed by him how bad of a scumbag he is. So it it's it's again, it's a weird level of oddball humor because when you watch these uh general type of movies, it's always Male oriented, even like the scene in Porky's when they're looking through the little cutaway in the bathroom and just spying on the women, something that, you know, technically voyeurism is just such an not technically voyeurism is such an explicit, awful thing, you know, just a betrayal of trust. The same thing goes on and not the same thing, but like Linnea eventually takes this character home and fucking handcuffs him to her her wall and leaves them there so that's i mean pretty fucking abhorrent i mean that's just equally as bad i mean that's technically kidnapping and rape he did have sex with minors
0: though but she does yeah. rape him after that but i don't know he's he he wanted it
1: well, that's what I mean. There's no justification to these things, but at every angle they're addressed and they're they're pointed to that like the the rapist is now being raped and submits at the end of the day and helps out. There are a lot of uh, now that you've brought it up, there is a lot of like odd kind of pro <laughs> feminist angles to yeah the, the there entirety really is. of
0: it it's, it's, it's when you go through the film because the 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 female leads are the heroes and the man uh, the men are always played for Fucking idiots! They're never played as being smart or in any way capable of handling any of this. And the one, uh, even Dwayne
1: that kind of gets it in the sequel gets his comeuppance at the end of the movie, which you know we'll, we'll get there too. So where where are we at with with Vice Academy, the very first movie? Oh
0: well, like a few of my favorite things from the first Vice Academy film, uh, um, specifically Linnea scenes. Um, one is when Devonshire pulls out the purse, and the classroom and says, "Do you know what this is?" And she goes, "It looks like purse. a horse purse." And then she pours it out and says, "It is a horse purse." It just makes me laugh. There's a lot why.
1: of just kind of cheeky fucking jokes throughout the entire thing. Um, right before that scene where they're doing the whole makeup thing, when when Ginger Lynn says, "Well, why don't you use some girls that just don't look so cheap?" There's just just a lot of cattiness between everyone going on, and I guess this is a, a fairly interesting story. If you own this Vinegar Syndrome disc and you've watched the special, fe- special... um, Fucking Mike Tyson all of a sudden. If you watch the special features, you can just skip ahead because you know all of this, but there's dual interviews with Ginger Lynn Allen and Linnea Quigley. And I guess Ginger Lynn had a, a connotation of being a prima donna, and... Throughout the years had heard rumors that Linnea didn't like her and everyone on set didn't like her, not just Linnea, that just everyone thought she was an absolute horrible diva. So she gets in contact with Linnea Quigley and, you know, talks to her for hours and hours and hours and realizes... Well, they didn't necessarily think you were a bitch, but there there were some problems. And it, it kind of really fits and suits with what you see on screen, that um, Ginger Lynn was late pretty much every day, which is just that's the type of person she is. She's one of those people that's always late. You know somebody in your life just like that. She didn't do anything explicitly bad. You know, her agent, and this is what agents do... Went out of their way to make sure she got the best. So she got a trailer at one point. But that can really rub people the wrong way, especially when you don't let them fucking hang out in your trailer, which is a sin she truly committed. But there's a a really great scene, and one of my favorite scenes, I think one of everybody's favorite scenes in the movie, where Ginger Lynn Allen and Linnea Quigley finally fight it out. And and it's no faking it. They're pulling hair. They knock into each other. I mean, they're really giving each other hell. And, you know, you you hear a little bit of the behind the scenes and it's it's nice to know nobody actually had it at this point. Later on, there, there might be some some disliking problems, mostly with Rick Sloan. But at this point, nobody hated each other and, and they were actually having fun. And that's where all these rumors kind of came from is over the years, people watched that scene. And when you watch it, I mean, they're they're fucking going at it. There's no joke in there. And it's just kind of remarkable that, you know, even just as a personality, as somebody as successful as Ginger that she went out of her way to contact Linnea and, and, you know, just make sure. I'm not a bitch, right? And she wasn't. She definitely wasn't. And going into the next movie, I think, personally, she kind of becomes a favorite that you really start rooting for uh, the Holly character.
0: Well, like, um, also another scene I really do appreciate from Linnea is uh, when she is shooting the porn film, and she's supposed to be scared of Chucky, but she rips the g- doors off the goddamn hinges, which is which is just a really funny kind of thing.
1: Even in that same scene when they, they yell action and there's just the person in frame smoking a cigarette, but nobody yells cut. She just shooes them off and is just waving, get the hell out of the frame, just get out. There's, there's she no has to go cuts. powder her nose. That's understandable. She says she's nervous. She's got to go to the next room. There's just a lot of fun throughout the entire movie. I love at the very, very end when they, uh, they, they, they're just the the dual shots of the inside of the van, and you've got like twelve, thirteen people, and it obviously cuts to not shot at the same time. Everyone's standing outside, and, and it's sunset, and dust just starts rolling into the frame, and and you know th- this movie was shot on short ends, so you can't do a lot of different takes and there's one point where everyone's covered in dust and then cherry pops just jumps in in the most ridiculous weird aerobics outfit Uh, i'm i'm four times platinum and no point for any of this and you find out that the girl's previous arrest counts and they've got all of these people stuck in the car and it just keeps transitioning back and forth to these two fucking shots and then finally everyone gets into the van and if you look it's a completely different scene in the back that it's all the vice academy girls and not the hookers anymore that are are bouncing around and again like there's something somewhat explicit the whole movie uh most of their arrests are just it's poor, all prostitution yeah, stings. Like I mean, that's what
0: we're most focused on is like um like getting hookers. They're a laundry hookers. Workers. They all have really dig- ridiculous names like tinsel. Um but as far as like the shooting style of this film, uh oh. we're gonna get a little technical here. And one of the things that I It's not bad. Don't I, I mean I can't really complain about uh, Rick Sloan as a filmmaker for doing this because I understand the budget he was under and things like that and the time frame he was under, but At the same time, it's shot very haphazardly, and a lot of this, like, there's not many close-ups. We're not, we're just mostly working with master scenes, and a lot of the uh, the stuff that's going on. At sometimes it feels positive that it feels improved, but sometimes it just feels like sloppy and lazy when like people are just kind of flubbing lines, and it's just like, ah, I don't, I don't like, you know what I mean? Like, kind of when we get to the queen bee. Of the prostitution ring that um they're trying to most bust. Of those the end.
1: And most of those problems you're bringing up too are definitely budgetary and come down to you know, like
0: we just have so many wide shots that we're trying to get all this information through, and it just it just feels a little lazy. But again, that's budget. That's a lot of different things. Not
1: just budget. With that, a lot of these wide shots and and some of the problems behind that I can actually explain here briefly. They had zero space there. It wasn't just a problem of budget. The offices were all the exact same offices just reshot, just incredibly tiny spaces that nobody could fit into. Bringing in the Queen Bee, there's the scene with uh, Manny Serrano and the Queen Bee where everyone walks out from behind the boxes. That was the end of the room. They just had to keep stacking the boxes up and had, you know, so you, you're really stuck with space here. And you know, it's not a, a matter of defending the product. Cause I do agree with you. Uh, the first vice Academy movie is the cheapest looking and he yeah, got there's yelled a
0: lot of like, reference to this. There's a whole lot of exit stage left where it feels like we're filming a play and we're not filming a movie where people are just kind of Carted off into one direction when their scene is over, and they just kind of leave the scene. And it's just, I mean, it's a it's a staple of cheap filmmaking. It doesn't have to be there, but at the same time, the conditions you're working under, and um, the fact that you probably don't have the most professional crew behind you, it's gonna look a little student filmish at times. Because I mean, you got you work with what you got, but that it's a minor complaint. It just doesn't feel as much like a produced movie as I think it can be. I, and I think vice Academy Two addresses this, addresses this issue in some ways and it gets a little bit better, but there's still a lot of haphazard, like the signs being done with airbrush paint in most, all these films, any like sign that they do is airbrushed shit like that. It just bugs me. A weird eighties high school party.
1: So are yeah. we gonna, are, are we, ta- are we running and gunning into vice Academy too? Is this a segue?
0: Well, I mean, at the end of Vice Academy, they do graduate the Vice Academy. They become Vice officers. Uh, most of the cast disappears when we get to Vice Academy Two, and we're left with um, Dee Dee and Holly being the uh, the people who are still continue on as characters, and Miss uh, Miss Devonshire as well. Which is a bummer um, because
1: I kind of wanted
0: Dwayne to come back, and I was enjoying Shawnee. I liked the the. You know what Dwayne place. was in. Do you remember the vampire? What the what was the vampire movie we watched for one of those YouTube shows we did like a few months ago that took place in the apartment? Oh, shit. Um, yeah, he's in that thing. It was a Fred Olin Ray movie, wasn't it? No, that was it was cheaper than Fred Olin Ray. I can't remember what cheaper it was. What was the Olin name Ray? of it? Vampire Warriors? Or the I don't know, Something man. like that. Oh, man. It was, it was bad. But it's the same like we were saying before about the, like the Dave Dakota um, people, all these people were in a lot of Hollywood cheap shit movies, and he, I, I've seen him in at least four or five of uh, movies of the same like ilk and the same caliber.
1: So we're into Vice Academy Two now from nineteen ninety,
0: which gets a lot more um, parody. It's a lot less about being like a sex comedy and more about the jokes in themselves and just making kind of a kind of a crazy movie because we introduce a fucking bimbo cop in this, which is a, uh, a robot. So, I mean, we're, we're getting into the point of fantasy with these great
1: to the dismay of director and producer writer, Rick Sloan. He fucking hates bimbo cop. The character was, was his device, but he had somebody else in mind for it. And this actress was forced upon him and he has a great it's
0: Tegan from uh Fred Owen Ray's alienator. Yeah. The bodybuilder.
1: He has a great disdain for Tegan. Rick Sloan I think will go to his grave with Fuck Teagan possibly etched into it and it is kind of I don't know I guess the, the, the lesser thing about this movie I can't stand Bimbo Cop it wasn't funny to me and it truly was the actress like that was the problem it you didn't do anything and it could have been a really goofy low budget dumb character and you put some football pads on a, a big giant weightlifter, and it, it just wasn't funny to me it's like when somebody's been messing with her box yeah, yeah uh... Uh... Well, I mean, it's like when you would use uh, Hulk Hogan for the A-Team, and it was just Hulk Hogan helping out. You, you didn't really do anything. You just threw in somebody that was really, really big. Like, hey, check it out. Wilt Chamberlain's and Conan the Barbarian.
0: Uh, all right. Well, like, one of the things that Bicycle 2 does, uh, first of all, it does have Dwayne Whitaker in it at the beginning. And I always thought when I saw this on USA Not back Rapid, that anyone. guy is fucking hilarious. Um, and he shows up in Hobgoblins. He shows up in a lot of, uh, Tarantino adjacent films. Everybody should know Dwayne Whitaker at this point as an actor. He fucked Ving um, Rames. Dwayne Whitaker. Yeah. He was in Pulp Fiction, but anyway, um, I think the characters are much better sketched in this film. I think Holly has been given much more personality. She's a, still a bit of a bitch, well, but I mean I understandably so. Uh,
1: just keeping notes and cliffhangers on things I reference that you really get a lot of development and compassion with how these characters are treated. And this is really uh, this is where it really comes into full play here is the as you're just going into and leading into the Holly character gets a great deal of development. The Dee, Dee character as well. Just everyone gets a a a, a nice rounding. And you're left in the last film with um, Jane Hamill, Mrs. Devonshire, as kind of an asshole. You know, she, with intent, tried to get Dee Dee and Karen and and Dwayne killed. You know, she sent them on a a mission that was impossible, another TV reference, because that's something, obviously, Rick Sloan really loves is TV. In this movie, she becomes more of a familiar character that you're going to get attached to, and it really helps because, God, Jane Hamill's hysterical. It, and it, it's just the timing, too, something that you gave uh, a compliment to Linnea Quigley with. Linnea has, like—I'm trying to think of a good reference here.
0: Um, well, she knows how to be broad when she needs to be broad, to make the she's jokes She's a Buster sell. Keaton
1: type. Like, she can, she can do a lot of pratfalls. There's even a great scene in Part 1 when she's going into uh, the porn audition and does that almost little fall stumble. She can do these great facial expressions. She has just this wonderful, pure sense of— um. You know, rhythmic timing. She really knows where to get into things. She knows how to improv. And it's just obvious when it comes to Linnea Quigley. Jane Hamill has uh, the same uh, attributes, but she just has such a a different control of it. And her prim and, and just... Way too proper, stuck up, needs to get fucked character. She seems to be like a
0: groundling or she worked for Second City at one point. That's the type of actress she seems to be to me. I really do think she if I did some more research, I could probably find out if she was a groundling because that's what it seems like she was.
1: Uh, So by what we're discussing and what we mean is Jane Hamill has some incredible range on her. Not that anyone doesn't. I mean, and that's, again, something I brought up at the beginning of the show also. People almost discredit things that that have porn stars in it. And yeah, I know. We all saw that Sasha Gray movie with David Hess. It did suck. I'll I'll give it that. That did suck. But Ginger Lynn is good. Like, Ginger Lynn Allen is, is really entertaining. She's funny. Yeah, and it's so great that they, you know, perfectly cast her as the most prudish character because... She doesn't get to do anything that she, you know, formerly was known for or had done. And it's just such a different beast of a character. You end up, everybody loves Linnea. Everybody loves Linnea. I love Linnea. You love Linnea. It's just, it goes with the flow. It's the territory. You like horror, you love Linnea. But Ginger Lynn, to me, steals the scenes. I love her in Vice Academy 2. And unfortunately, this is Linnea's last appearance in Vice Academy. But Ginger Lynn is my overall favorite. It's just the transformation of the Holly character in this movie is great. And the cattiness between the two. Who had become, at this point... I think pretty okay friends. They were comfortable with each other. They knew each other. So most on-screen cattiness was really, you know, faked.
0: Well, what I find like interesting about this, and this is what I like, at least in this film and the third film, it started this thing of sectioning out the movie, which is kind of an odd filmmaking technique um, for me to experience because The way, like, it does have an overlying plot of this uh, British woman in SMN gear named Spanish Fly, who's going to put Spanish Fly in the city's water supply to, like, you You know, give everybody. You've got to Um, explain
1: what Spanish Fly is for our audience now because it's two thousand and fucking twenty.
0: Well, I mean, uh, what Spanish Fly back in the day was a supposed aphrodisiac that would just drive like women crazy and people crazy in general, and. I, I guess they're going on the fact that, that you it was an actual thing and it wasn't something you just got out of vending machines. Um, but that's the overall premise, is we have to stop her.
1: It's one of those things like when you're at the gas station and you see those weird you know pills with the butterfly or bee on them that say, you know, we'll keep you hard for hours, keep you going for days. That's what Spanish Fly is here. And this is where a lot of the deeper jokes with rick sloan as a writer come in part three has some of my favorites just because of the theme it follows which we'll get into but something as i I, god damn i have to keep saying it something i referenced earlier Uh, rick sloan uses continuity fucking beautifully if he writes something he doesn't back right around it in the next movie he just fucking uses it and I, i have such a deep appreciation for that not even trying to insult guys like quentin tarantino but, like, the Resident Evil series, Quentin Tarantino movies, just the consistent back writing. Like, the joke Uma Thurman tells John Travolta in uh, Pulp Fiction. Yeah, it matches up to the girls in Kill Bill. Isn't that clever? Uh, yeah, I guess. But at the same time, you know, everything's Castle Rock and whatever. I, I, it gets... So extensively boring, having to connect things by backwriting that it exhausts you, and having something so simplistic and bizarre as the Vice Academy series being the refreshing point of non backwriting, but actually adding sequels, and I believe part two and three were pretty much bought and and ready to go before Rick had even done scripts. That you know, it was like every eighteen months or so they would do a movie.
0: Well, like the way I was talking about the, the sectionality of it, what it feels like to me is the movies go like in Vice Academy 2, it starts out with them um, fucking over the cop Petrolino and they have to atone for it and they get pulled off the force onto like, you know, white duty. And then it gets to them trying to get out and like become vice cops again. So they there's a whole thing of a section where they spend like five to ten minutes with Petrolino and trying to convince them him to give them a recommendation through, like, you know, sexual advances. But they still do have the power and they choose to flex that power and not have sex with them. But and then we go to the section with Bembo Cop and then we go. It's just kind of like the movies get into these weird things of like, we're going to concentrate on this and not focus on anything else going on in the rest of this world at all. We're going to go to this for 10 minutes. Now we're going to go to this set for 10 minutes. Now we're going to go to this set for 10 minutes. So it's just, it kind of sections out the movie into like sequences again, kind of like a play. So it's just, it's kind of weird. Probably has to do with studio space and you don't want to have to tear down the sets. But I mean, there's ways of shooting around that.
1: I have some brief explanations in defense of Rick Sloan. Um, Part three definitely melds all the stories together much better. I do understand where you're going at with the how it's sectioned off, because part three goes into all these random different stories, but they all meet in the middle. This one just is like a soap opera. It's just, here's the day, here's the story, and here's what's going to go on next, 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 and next. But they had pretty much, the USA Network, and I, I, it wasn't just them, it was the the company overall producing this, whose name I don't remember because I'm not a professional and I suck, but... They had pretty much bitched every sequel. You know, you don't do enough outside shots. You don't have enough different set locations. You just keep doing everything in the same place. We're tired of it. You got to do something more. You got to have more nudity. You got to have more of this. You got to do something else. It's got to be a different actor being nude. You can't keep showing the same people. You got to give us more. You got to do something else. So each movie, you can see progressively where the network and the production company pretty much bitched at him because from part one, we're in pretty much the exact same sets and locations the entire time. Part two is a constant changing of the same four and five sets. And then part three is, fuck it, we're outdoors the entire time now. Let's just, fuck, they want more outdoor shots? Here's outdoor shots, outdoor shots, outdoor shots, outdoor shots. I can't vouch for the other movies. I think three
0: actually suffers for that immensely because there's so much. Well, when you shoot outdoors, it takes a little bit more to light it. And it seems like all the night shots in Bicyc Academy 3 are just, you know, big 10 K's just blasting a lot of light and a whole lot of shadow behind them. And it's not very like, uh, like expertly done. It's just kind of like, we got to get some light so we can get something to register on the film. Here you go. And they don't really attempt to make night look like night, but whatever.
1: With more facts back in Rick Sloan, the first two movies were a bit more guerrilla style and he didn't have permits for most of the things he was doing. And it's incredibly hard to get shots done on, um, sunset boulevard sunset boulevard it's just constantly patrolled by police officers and one of my favorite shots from the first vice academy movie is linnea and karen walking down sunset boulevard at night and that was naturally lit you know he had taken a light meter and had tracked how much space they would have had and that's just the pure uh, beauty and the essence of la and the neon that naturally showed through in the second film has a lot of that in the movie. It shows a lot of the the nightlife. It hasn't. It has a nice look. I think I, I agree with Rick Sloan's statement that most of the money didn't show up on screen here. That this sh- looks like a porn. Most of this movie looks like somebody's just about to start fucking any minute. And it, it's not a fault to you know short ends. It's just how it ended up being fully cut. And I've only seen for the sake of uh, Vice Academy 2 and 3, the full uncensored version. So that's going with, you know, the whatever, 4K, maybe 3K, I don't know, 2K, 1K, whatever Master Vinegar Syndrome did. I didn't read the back of the box because, again, (laughs) I suck.
0: Well, I mean, and, like, you get into this thing where, I was talking about before, a little bit of the laziness. Uh, When they get... Um, abducted at the strip club and they get tied to chairs. They're tied with the strip these, club like,
1: that they were gonna go become accountants at. Well, it, what
0: that was the job yeah. offer, right? It's it, called they, the Vicerama or something like that. It was an airbrush so many,
1: sign. If you thought the first movie was punny, this one gets even worse. You know, and it's just down to clever, weird jokes like that. That Mrs. Devonshire gets them job applications for the strip club so they go as slutty as possible, and it's for a bookie. A
0: bookkeeper. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> uh, but like when they get tied up and Bimbo Cop saves them to get the ropes off, we're still in this master shot and it's obvious they were never tied up. The ropes are incredibly loose and Bimbo Cop just kind of pulls these ropes off. That's the kind of the laziness I'm talking about. It's just like, uh, eh, just can we give it a little bit more effort? Like actually tie them up or, and like, Cut the scene I knew listening in between to the commentary
1: was going to actually work and benefit me here because even the exact scene you're talking about, that was like the 17th take and they had gotten tired of the, all the other takes that had them perfectly and immaculately tied and true knots just got lost. That by the end of the day, that's the one that came through, and that's a a, a big problem with the series. Is it seems outside of Rick Sloan and like Ginger Lynn, Linnea Quigley, the Lee, Jane Hamill, um, you know, uh, John Henry Richardson joins the cast in this movie as the police commissioner. Uh, through two, through part six, outside of the professionals, most of them were kind of day to day workers. This movie explicitly, um, Rick had a really hard time with the the head camera guy. That everything was a fight, day-to-day scenes that would take two or three minutes to shoot took hours. And it it just was a constant uphill battle. And when you don't have your own crew, when you're not shooting with people, and nobody, most people, uh, hardcore indie guys get this, but most people don't pick their crew. You know, you're some big, huge dude, yeah, you get to pick your crew, or you're some really tiny dude that knows a bunch of people, and you pick your crew this was an assigned sort of job, and it you can see a lot of things that were obvious clashing. And this is where we get into, I mentioned that people started to somewhat disagree with each other. Rick Sloan just couldn't stand Tegan. The production company had stepped in and kind of insisted on a lot of things. Um, Linnea had demanded, I think it was $200 a breast per breast. So if two breasts were shown, both of them, that's 400 bucks for the scene. So she she started getting... You know, Ginger Lynn was having her own trailer brought in. During the filming of this, she was dating Charlie Sheen and was very adamant several times that she had to leave, that, you know, she couldn't finish the entire day. And she would go out and, and party with Sheen and his entourage for two or three days and come back, probably coked up and pretty fucked up, and, and insist on still being able to work. There was just a lot of difficulties that started with Vice Academy 2 that probably were more undue stress on Rick Sloan, who I don't mean this as an insult. He's a cheap guy. He doesn't like to overuse budget. He's definitely a a true independent budget type of dude. He doesn't want to pay for like you brought up the neon signs. He's not going to have these things professionally done. If you look, almost all the costumes were used in all of his previous films and things like Hobgoblins and the other vice Academy movies, he uses his fucking resources and wants to get in and out and get the shot and get paid for it. And, I really feel he was probably plagued more than helped with uh, production companies, production assistants, other people that weren't familiar with his style. You know, just get in, get out, shoot it, get it done with.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of what I guess I miss is um, Nightmare Sisters feels a lot like this too, um, which is uh, Kenneth Hall, I believe, is the director of that one. But um, there's... (sighs) It's just that play feeling of where we're getting just so many master shots and occasional close ups. And I just want more shots. I want more editing. And like sometimes scenes go on for like two or three minutes of everybody just standing there, like delivering dialogue, things like that. Like action scenes are not shot like action scenes. It's, and I think it, it, I know it has a lot to do with budget and what you were able to accomplish on the day, but I just wish you could maximize your time better, your setups better, your lighting better, and just be able to like get in there and get some like quicker shots. Cause like not to reference George Romero on every goddamn show we do, but he was able like in something like, um, season of the witch, Or uh, Martin to get so many shots with almost no crew whatsoever and be able to light them and get them done and be able to have stuff to edit to and have a lot of dog shots to really kind of expand the scope of it. And that's what I think the Vice Academy series misses most for me is just it needs it just needs more stuff. It just needs more shots throughout the whole thing. Everything ends up just feeling like a little performance and let's move on to the next setup.
1: Well, I'm not trying to be overly critical of Rick Sloan's style and his career, but for the most part it just isn't really his style. I mean, I'm I'm not trying to reference Hobgoblins as a, as the pinnacle of everything he's done. Yeah, and but...
0: Hobgoblins is the same way. I mean, I'm not like it's yeah, I mean, uh, it's the, the same way series. in all of his
1: films for the most part. It's I think it is is something that is more stylistic and two, you know, uh, rem- and I'm not saying that Rick Sloan doesn't have the same amount of integrity that George Romero does, but Romero wasn't Especially with the movies you referenced, Martin and Jack's Wife, uh, wasn't a season of the witch. wasn't trying to make a a production movie. He wasn't trying to join a team. He was making a movie for himself. And it's not that Rick Sloan was, but these movies were being made for television. These movies were being made for a company. So he was, you know, doing the best that he possibly could while attempting to stay under budget and just get the fucking thing done and and truly he had an idea that it would just it was going to be 1 through 3 the other movies are incidental because it it came to a situation that USA had you know alerted him we've been showing these a lot and you know if you don't do another one we're just going to sell the rights you know pump out a bunch more and he took the opportunity to follow through and continue making them and you know that kind of i guess is starting to push us into part 3 Which I I really enjoy. I, I definitely feel that the second movie as a whole, despite... It was about an equal budget, so I don't want to say it was lesser than part three, but none of that really seemed to show up on screen. And what ended up happening is the USA Network wants Rick Sloan to put more of this money on screen. And to some extent, it follows through with the third movie, but for the most part, it even becomes more of, like, a skinamax softcore porn because, yeah, there are sets, but, I mean, it's just—it's goofy. Uh, like, for example, in part two, there is uh, an overly long scene of Linnea and Ginger Lynn learning how to run the switchboard, and it's just this dumb styrofoam, big big microphone. You can tell nothing's real. When you go into the third movie— Everything's just wood spray painted, all the prison sets. They had more budget, so I mean, there's a, like the opening shot when Holly's in prison. They show multiple cells, they show they've got space. They're kind of uh, flaunting that there's a bit of a budget, but it was just kind of used, I think, in the worst regions of of presenting where your budget is. Oh, and Linnea's gone. Linnea, yeah, clearly... and we
0: replaced her with uh, Elizabeth Caton, which. I'm fine with because I like yeah. Elizabeth Caton a lot. She's sexy as hell. I see a um, lot of
1: complaints with people. No Linnea, no Vice Academy. But I guess what it comes down to, and this is uh, something I learned from Rick Sloan, so I don't know how entirely true the entire statement is. But Linnea was tapped to do Vice Academy 3, and like two or three days before Principal Photography had her agent contact Rick Sloan and, and the production company and let them know that. She didn't want to do it, or it wasn't so much that she wanted to do it. It just wasn't, I guess, to her abilities. Again, I'm paraphrasing here, but it annoyed him greatly, and he had to rewrite the entire script, which I think kind of plays off. I mean, I would have liked to have seen what happened to Dee Dee and Ginger and and what's going to go on. But uh, as you just brought up, I really like Liz, I think. And again, she is. She's sexy as hell. She's a great addition. And this, to me, is where it becomes...
0: She's definitely ditzier than Dee Dee is, though.
1: Well, that's where uh, I'm driving here, is it, it definitely becomes triumphantly much more television than anything else. This is an Adam West Batman episode mixed with the Brady Bunch, the Osmonds, Partridge There's Family... There's a fucking
0: Joker reference, for Christ's sakes.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all of this, is, and this is where I've been driving at the whole show, is uh, Rick Sloan's absolute love of television. And it's just so many TV gimmicks. Everything is is kind of bitten from TV shows here, especially, you know, The Partridge Family, The Monkeys, just all the fun shenanigan shows of the 1960s and 19, early 1970s.
0: Well, see, it's my least favorite. And it's weird to me that it had one of the highest budgets because it looks like it's one of the lowest budgets. Well, your least favorite um,
1: out of the initial three.
0: And like, I can tell by her performance, Ginger Lynn is not particularly happy to be there. She is not giving it her all in this film. It looked like a payday for her.
1: There's an explanation for that. She was uh, in and out of court with the IRS for tax evasion.
0: Yeah, she just does not look happy, and she's not really kind of putting in the comedy. She doesn't – I don't think she even smiles in the movie once. Uh, she had um, a,
1: a massive – this is really where I guess some of the fun cattiness starts. She had a massive disagreement with one of the actresses whose name um, – I can't remember at it all. It's the third lead.
0: Uh Oh, the um, the, ch- the other chicken prison? Not Malathion. Not the Joker character, but – um. Yeah, I can't
1: remember her name. I can't remember her name at all, Uh, and it's kind of funny because it's somebody that Rick Sloan really, really had a problem with. What I can tell you is she was dating Wingshauser at the time. Oh, well, that's was, that's a big problem in your life. Well, that's where a lot of the difficulty came from. She was dating Winghauser and instantly constantly wanted off if he had a new program on needed to be off constantly. So now Ginger Lynn is no longer the diva we have. Uh, I, I feel just awful because I, <laughs> I did research. I just don't remember her name whatsoever. So I'm sure this would greatly appease uh, Rick Sloan because we just can't remember the character's name. Uh, she just caused a lot of difficulties on set and that is what I think is present a lot with Ginger Lynn and there's a lot of scenes that they were actually fighting on off screen, uh, previous to, you know, somebody saying cut and let's go and it just was a bad atmosphere. That everyone but um, you know Liz Katan had problems. That Liz and Ginger apparently, you know, were really close and had a lot of fun times together. The rest of it was just kind of flawed with issues from this actress whose name that we just can't remember. Wingshauser's yeah. ex-girlfriend.
0: Well, I know that Malathion um, is played, here's here's a bit of trivia, Malathion's played by Julia Parton, who is Dolly Parton's either cousin, cousin. or niece. I can't remember what cousin. she is. She's related to Dolly Parton. And she is an ex uh, pornographic star, and this was, At I the think, time, her shot. she was shot. still working, and it's her cousin. It's her cousin. So, okay, I had that I had that little piece, right? And, like, I, I appreciate the character of Malathion and having the supervillain kind of Batman theme going, and very much Batman. I mean, her fucking hair turns green. And we figure into this environmental aspect of um, Malathion's being sprayed on the uh, in California at the point and it turning her into some kind of whatever supervillain. Um, but getting back to that sectional feeling of the film like when they go to the I hate to um... interrupt
1: you but here's where the problem's coming in Um, the actress is hates this movie so much she had her name removed from the credits so oh the third lead apparently dislikes this movie that much maybe she won't even sign at conventions that'd be ridiculous I don't know why you would hate something like this that much. i don't know i'm sorry some people
0: get embarrassed by things that they've done darcy Demos,
1: um, i think darcy Demos. i don't know if it's Demos or Demos, but that's her full name i yeah, i had to possibly uh jump you just on doxed IMDb. her
0: yeah <laughs> that's,
1: that's why i i now own her life i am darcy um, DeMoss. welcome to death by dvd
0: but when the girls <laughs> start fighting over um the the police scientist or whatever that's like a huge chunk in this movie when they're trying to, um, you know, use their feminine wiles to to court him or whatever. You know, that scene goes on for like 10 fucking minutes and it goes nowhere. It's goddamn pointless to any sort of plot to the film. I mean, I don't dislike it. I mean, it's kind of funny in some ways. It's a new uh, location. It's kinda... It's a little sexy at times, but at the same point, it's just like, what the fuck does this have to do with anything? And that's my biggest problem with Vice Academy 3 is it just feels so scatterbrained everywhere. It's like, what the fuck is even going on? I don't even know what Malathion's plan is throughout this whole film. And I do have a problem with the recasting plan. of Devonshire. Um,
1: I-, I love, and this was one of the things I was referencing on on backwriting or how people don't backwrite and can actually use their substance and 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 continue through with continuity, uh, the in, the jokes through this movie, just with Malathion itself, for one, Malathion gas or Malathion is something that's used to treat, like, pubic lice or, or scabies, so she gets sprayed with this and becomes the, the Joker character because, for some reason, they're spraying this in the air in Los Angeles, and I don't know about all the deep southern states, but a few years ago, I was running a cult in Florida, and it was just completely bizarre to me that there's mosquito trucks, and there's these giant like trash fucking trucks that drive oh, they do around. they're
0: doing the same thing in L.A. in the, uh, the 90s. They were yeah. spraying pesticides all the exactly.
1: time. Exactly. So it, it's in that sort of reference. I mean, I, I know we have a, a, a vast German-British, used-to-be uh, Italian, and Spanish audience, so I don't know if they have trucks that drive around the city spraying pesticides in other countries, but uh, quote-unquote pesticides in other countries. But that's how the character uh, gets changed into this entire thing. And it becomes this, like, Weird environmentalist joke the entire time. All of her crimes, and I find this hysterical... All have some like twinge of environmentalism to them. So when she attacks somebody, she sprays them with hairspray because it's bad for the environment. And you get that this... joke works.
0: I will give it that. That's I, a I, kind I, of a funny joke.
1: I find that. Well, what the pinnacle of even the joke is when all the women come to the police station yeah. and they have that Edward scissors. Yeah, and she she's a threat to us and the environment. And there's just a clever and again like we referenced with the first movie, it's just a lot of like but um bump one liners that you have to continuously start paying attention to. Uh, as the characters are delivered, and now that you're missing Dee Dee, you you, she wasn't
0: necessarily the ditz, but she was kind of the sex vision. She was the fun one. She was really fun and sexy. And now, yeah,
1: she was like the um, sex vixen, aspect Candy's of it.
0: ditzy, and kind of like dopey.
1: But now. Holly's kind of taking over as as the lead, sexy one, and it it's funny that it doesn't work because she's the fucking hardcore porn star, and it's just not like she. Holly's not a a vixen, no way. She's a prim and proper daddy's girl, and it it's hysterical that everything starts to work in almost an opposition of itself. And then you know, like you had you were referencing before I cut you off as usual. You've got the replacement of the Miss Devonshire character. I understand why you don't like it, and I, I get it, but there is kind of a rule. If you drop a character, you can't drop two. got to replace them. And at the time, um, the actress just couldn't. She was. Uh, you, you were talking about this before the show. She was working for The Nanny?
0: Yeah, she's a producer on The Nanny. She was a writer-producer for The Nanny.
1: So she had something going on, which is completely reasonable. I, I like that the character wasn't left out, because out of this entire series, one through three, especially, Miss Devonshire's really. Probably my favorite. Just the, the transformation of the characters is one of my favorites. But I really like her in part three because it's just such a weird, quirky performance. She reminds me of Ethel from the uh, I Love Lucy, you know, the neighbor.
0: Well, that's kind of like what my overall problem with this movie is, other than it feeling kind of cheaper than the other ones, is. It really started to feel like they were trying to do a trauma style film and I didn't like that and like I'm talking not even like good trauma I'm talking like really some of the like the bottom of the barrel trauma stuff where we're just like yeah we know we're making a piece of shit so eh, fuck it and that's kind of like like the performance of uh, Devonshire in this one I'm not berating the actor but she's like trying to do something in a John Waters movie she's just being way too fucking broad for that character she's not stern she's just over the top um,
1: well, that's one and of the just... things I like, that she becomes, in this movie only, a relatable character. She becomes one of the girls, and I think one of the most hysterical scenes is when they, they finally go to bond with each other, and they go to the strip club, and they have Miss Devonshire sitting by the nastiest part of the dance, just this just ass gyrating in a red thong, just bouncing by her head and again there's another pun where you're uh shown her house and where she goes to after work and she immediately goes home and there's somebody fucking next door so this really prim and proper and uptight the character that needs to get fucked the most has to live next door to somebody fucking all the time that it's just i, I like i mean obviously this wasn't i i believe the actress that got this gig was the first person considered for the role and they ended up going uh with who we've grown and loved as our as our a pure one from the first and second film that you get more development with who the character is you get a little bit of insight to like Mrs. Devonshire as a person that she
0: can cut I like loose. that in the script though. I just don't like the performance. Well, I mean that's where I'm just, you know, reaching here
1: with my defense of it that you know it obviously was written for somebody else and if they could have performed the role it it would have been I think Jordan J- Jordana Capra is who plays uh Devonshire in this film I'm not sure if that was her name Uh, Jordana Capra I think was the last name but you you would have gotten such a completely different performance with the original actress you would have gotten something uh, a little bit I don't know more prudish like Tippi Hedren kind of I mean that's kind of the vibe that she gives me like Tippi Hedren from the birds just very uh, not okay with releasing herself
0: And, like, um, comparing this one to the second one, I think the performances are a hell of a lot better in the second one. Even uh, Petrolino. I like uh, the guy who plays Petrolino in the second one. I like his performance. I mean, he's being arched, but...
1: What what? What did he make special for Linneo for dinner? Was it Beef Petrolino?
0: Yeah. (laughs) It's Um, just funny. I mean, there's just. I got you your own special toothbrush.
1: There's just Um, jock fucking humor, but they give it back to him at the end, and that works. And that final scene of the movie, if you pay close attention, his nose is actually swollen because Ginger Lynn fucking hit him in the scene where she had to punch him. There was no faking it.
0: Whoops. Um, It happens. It's better than
1: James Conn in The Godfather, where he never even lays contact with the guy when Sonny beats that dude up in the street.
0: As far as like the Vice Academy series, like I think the second one is probably the most professional. It's the best, like the most well put together. I think the acting is, is the the height that it can be, and by Vice Academy three and on through, because I've seen. Good portions of 4 and 5. I don't think I've ever seen 6. They got just really, really cheap. Part 5
1: sounds like it has the greatest synopsis ever. They have to stop cyber STDs. How could that... It's Liz, Kate. It just just sounds great. Well, I I mean,
0: like... And it's not really Rick Sloan's fault. I will give him this. At the time period he was making these, the market was really changing on films like these because you're getting into the mid to late 90s, and the market for sexploitation is changing because internet is bringing pornography into our homes for free around, like, 96, 97, 98, and all Part that. stuff. So- 5
1: was 1996.
0: Yeah, so basically, there's not as much of a need for this, and kind of the product started really dropping off at this point. And you can say the same thing if you look at um, full moon films from like '96, '97, '98, and you start getting to the early 2000s. It's kind of the same thing. So it has more to do with the fact Ginger that Ginger dead man, direct to video cinema just wasn't what it used to be in the late and like throughout the 80s and early 90s, and then the market was really changing at that point, and. And then in the early two thousands I think the market completely dropped out and it's just like it's not none of that stuff is particularly interesting to me. I I kinda lose the thread at that point in in, of history of exploitation cinema. And I more switch over to something like art cinema because that's where you're getting your best exploitation through the two thousands is through art films.
1: Well, truly look at the development of films like this, something like Van Wilder from the early 2000s, the American yeah. Pie series. The American Pie series even itself probably takes more from the, the notebook of the Vice Academy uh, movies than any other 80s series just because of its uh, constant repetition and use of pushing women a- against men. And it's just I, – I never really – I mean I've watched the movies. I've, I've enjoyed this box set from Vinegar Syndrome – I've enjoyed it, and I never really put forth the idea of, of a notion of feminism to it. And I think a big problem with that is you you just end up laughing, and you don't put a lot of thought process behind what is making you laugh. And it's it's I think the most intriguing aspect of, of this entire show is, it, admittedly, it is a very sleazy series. One through three, what we've delved into is a very sleazy series. It's greasy, to dust off an old phrase of mine but it has so much more substantial fucking, not even just writing, just everyone involved. You know, it's like, and I am I guess I'm just gonna shit on Sasha Gray for a little bit. The film she made with David Hess, it, it, it's not that it's a problematic movie. What's, My problem. What makes it problematic with me is it just sucked. You had people that obviously can act and obviously put. So maybe it's a director's problem. You know, there's a lot of issues that I don't know about this movie. But when I sit down and watched it, I was just so fucking bummed out that, you know, you and for me, when I hear a hardcore actress is moving on to a movie, I instantly think of Marilyn Chambers. And that's the hope. That I put behind it. I don't have some petty idea of all they do is fuck for a living. What are they going to do? I think of how amazing Marilyn Chambers was when she worked with David Cronenberg. And that's my immediate response. I think of how much effort Ginger Lynn put into her performance in all three of the original Vice Academy movies. And yes, they are definitely sexist, goofy, ridiculous, jock humor, uh, titty humor, whatever the fuck you want to call it. But there is a great weird amount of substance i didn't think this was going to become some in-depth defense of of the substance behind vice academy but there truly is a, a bizarre amount of substance and pretty accurate portrayals of the treatment of women at the time which is very reminiscent of now but to be able to capture 1988 humor and it still be relevant is just kind of a nod toward how calculated and and how well Rick Sloan could work with no budget and knowing what's funny, what's not funny, what's going to translate. And it's not, I mean, you can make a movie about something that's funny, but if you can key in what's going to be funny for 20, 30 years, that's even more kudos to your talent. And that's, you know, a tip of the hat to Rick Sloan because Police Academy, Corky's, all these movies, you know, there's one of my favorite scenes in Police Academy. I can't even quote because it uses a, a derogatory slur that, is commonly used toward homosexuals, and it's still one of my favorite scenes. You know, when the guy needs him to teach him how to drive, and he wakes up Mahoney, and he goes, sleeps for... <sighs> that scene, it's, it's hysterical still to me, but is it inappropriate and obviously offensive? Yes. Police Academy has a problem its entire series with that. Weirdly enough, despite the nudity and lewd dick humor, you know, sex humor, Vice Academy still has a... a a relevancy and it's not just, you know, funny because you remember 1988 or 1990 or you remember a certain era. It's, it just has a fluency of, of being funny.
0: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you brought up American pie, because I think that's really what happened with uh, the direct to video genre. It's more mainstream films started going super exploitive. And then the only way to get like real kind of exploitive, like I mean, Van Wilder, shit like that was well, I mean, coming was, out. Was so American Pie, but,
1: National Lampoons, was that?
0: Yeah, the first one. Well, was those then kind too? of movies were starting to come out around that point, and so the market had changed. So direct to video became started becoming more about art films and becoming more about like what like actual dramatic stuff. And the 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 two things like intertwine a lot. They over the years they they can go back and forth. Like right now. I mean, direct-to-video stuff is way better than anything coming out at theaters. I mean, think of anything that you've seen from A24, or um, because not all A24 movies come out at every theater. You have to track them down. If you're in a city, sure, but like A24 stuff, I mostly watch it VOD because that's how I have to watch it when it drops VOD. To bring up
1: Solnier again, I, I was very very lucky to be able to see Green Room in theaters, and I wasn't you know realizing VOD at the time. for me. I didn't know how lucky I was to get that experience, and you know bringing up uh, the time right now and things going on in the world. This truly is the end of certain forms of art. Most theaters aren't going to recover from from what's
0: happening uh, 50, right now. 50%, I'd say. Uh,
1: AMC is already preparing to close its doors, and it's just something that is somewhat remarkable, uh, especially like my generation. I'm a little bit younger than I, Alexander Nash. I have transitioned from from videotape to giant picture discs, uh, laser discs, to dvd to digital and now finally i'm experiencing and and as all of you equally will the death of theaters but something specific about my generation is we never were a theater going type i always have been just you know because i do a fucking show once a week talking about movies so obviously i've gone out of my way and i'm not trying to say i'm special i'm sure many of you that listen to the show and go out of your way to find it feel the same way but the problem is nobody wants to do that. Nobody. It's, it's not even a colloquial thing of a bunch of people getting together and sitting down and watching a movie in a theater. It's just the, the process of going through it, the amount of money that goes through it. The issue with all of these things going away and disappearing is is truly, and I've said this before, I believe in, in a lot of instances, films are made to be seen a very certain way. I have personally had a very hard time re-watching Midsummer. I've not been able to make it through it. It's not specifically boring. It sucks on my TV. It doesn't look interesting. I'm bored. And it's not because it's a bad movie. It's not boring. I saw it in theaters. I'm very thankful for that. But there's a lot of movies that have, and I've again discussed this before, rewatchability and the value of rewatchability. Something can look absolutely amazing on a certain aspect ratio and on a certain screen with a certain surround sound, and it's fucking garbage later. And it's incredibly unfortunate when something like that happens to... What I would say is, is a, a a masterpiece, a great piece of art. I think midsummer is a masterpiece. It is untouchable. It is a really untouchable movie. and like I'm not gonna talk shit on it, but I I just I don't I can't sit and watch it at home. I uh, once upon a time in Hollywood, just to throw a completely different movie down the pipe. You've not even seen that. you don't enjoy I. It's not that I'm a Tarantino fan either, but neither here nor there with my statement. I own that movie, and it's just... I can't watch it at home. It, it's lost its pizzazz. There was something amazing about
0: here. What have I told you, though? What have I told you? How to fix this? There's... I I, I, I don't know. You just tell me. I, I don't know. Paint a wall in your house white and buy a fucking projector.
1: I don't have the the, the walls. It's it's brick, and it's fucked up, and there's a fire... There's a
0: lot of stuff. Uh, one day. you've got, Or buy a screen buy some canvas okay so
1: everything the last like eight and a half nine minutes of my ranting could be easily deleted if you paint a fucking wall white and buy a projector so there is an option i'm just saying there's
0: like this is where it's headed that's the point of the goddamn show i mean there's
1: there's options to this you know i say something you say something so i mean i had this whole feeling and it's it's still a valuable idea i mean I, i what my issue is and my sorrow is the death of theaters is the death of 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 being able to do this which you hate you can't stand going and sitting in a theater and And it's it's not not that that... i
0: hate it i enjoy going to the theater my point is you don't have a fucking choice you can lament it all you want and you can be sad about it but you're not gonna have a choice much longer it's going away well
1: there's nothing you can do about it and not an ultimatum you're giving it a choice you're giving a choice to the choice of something you can do that is uh proactive and productive something that you could do to make your own home theater to keep art alive so you know what i'm doing is mourning the loss of something but at the exact same time you've given a stepping stone of well hey Here's something you can do. And that's not just for me. I mean, you out there in fucking Radio Land and the Infinite Eternal, while the ways of the Superfuzz Roll On Forever, Roar, you hear this I a fucking projector in a room white by a soundbar and enjoy whatever uh, our commentary for Resident Evil 6, the final chapter. There's so many things that are options and and. Driving this back to the Vice Academy series, what makes it such, especially the first three, an explicitly interesting ride is all the different options that were laid out and given to Rick Sloan, all the different paths he took, that from the first movie you could easily slide into something just equally as sleazy, and he ended up using what he had and and came up with a pretty enjoyable story, and I don't want to... You know, diss or 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 layer out or review the entirety of this man's career, but I would certainly say the first three Vice Academy movies are probably the strongest of of what Rick Sloan can show you as a writer and director. And ultimately, I think it's pretty fucking awesome.
0: Well, I think actually his first two films were probably his best films overall. There was um, the Visitants, and uh, what the fuck is the other one? It's a uh, Blood, theater, theater, I cannot remember the title of it to save my fucking life, but it, that shows some actual finesse with filmmaking. Um, so Rick Sloan, he's got the chops, but did anybody ever give him the time, money, or energy to be able to flex those chops? Sometimes they did at the beginning, and then it became producing stuff for basic cable for the most part. Um, blood theater. Blood theater, okay. Because um, that's got some like interesting shots and stuff in it, and some interesting... Um, directing pieces that he did in that film. But overall, just to kind of put a, a pinpoint in what you were saying a little bit earlier that what's going to be around is Almo draft house will continue to thrive. Theaters like that will still be doing well. If they, just, if they just keep going with like specialty screenings and things like that and art theaters, they will continue to be around, but multiplexes and that sort of thing and big movies coming out at theaters is going away more and more because it's just not financially sustainable. So it'll just go to a lot more streaming, a lot more VOD, but if you want to support your local indie art house theater, do that because those will make it in the long run because that's a niche product as long as there's enough fans to go to it. But I mean, they survive like my local indie theater survives on, I don't know how the fuck they survive because the, the amount of showings they have and the amount of people that show up is sometimes there might be like 12 people in the theater and that's considered a good damn night. Cause when I saw color uh, out of space, I think the, the in the audience there's maybe 20 people and they've been around for well over 20 years at this point now.
1: That's beyond depressing to me because when I saw Three from Hell, it was elbow-to-elbow packed, and it was awful that there were so many people in the theater. In fact, I don't remember a time that I've been in a theater for a showing that was this packed since Titanic came out. It was just an anxiety attack and made it so much more unpleasant, which is even furtherly awful because Three from Hell... Was, was But that's
0: another way they're doing it because that was a specialty event, well, and Fathom if you do road shows work. and stuff like that, you can you can make a little bit of money. If you just say, well, it's going to be playing for like one day, then people will show up. Maybe
1: I don't know. It's it's an odd occurrence, you know. Uh, the same events, Fathom events that did Three from Hell, they they do stuff all year, and I I try and keep up with that because I enjoy going to the theater and I enjoy film in general. It doesn't matter if I've seen something before. Um, right before Peter Fonda died, I went and saw, uh, I don't know, 35th. 40th, I don't remember which anniversary it was. Maybe 50th at this point. I went and saw the, the, the re-release Master of Easy Rider, and I was dead alone. My mother and I sat dead alone and watched the movie. A couple months beforehand, I went to, for Halloween to see Night of the Living Dead packed. Absolutely, uh, which was just extravagant and beautiful to see. Uh, Different
0: pedigree for that film, though.
1: Well, truly, though, I, here's something to just chirp into that. If you've never seen Night of the Living Dead on big screen, if it's ever showing around you, please, I implore you, go out of your way to do it. It's such a wonderful experience. It truly, uh, ca- it it just shows you how much goddamn work Romero put into what he did, even at the earliest stages of his career. Uh, but continuing the story, I saw Alien a couple months before that. Dead. You know, so it, it's just it's just odd market flow of, of what is going to matter. When I managed to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it was dead. I mean, I went at three in the afternoon. I live outside of Anytown, USA, which is, you know, very, very packed. It's a very big, uh, city. No one. It, it's just bizarre sometimes what the consumer wants and what the consumer doesn't want. I think a big placement is when you're at the theater... You can't smoke pot, you can't sit on your phone, you can't text. You actually have to pay attention to the movie. But when you're sitting at home doing whatever, it, no one appreciates art anymore. And that's where my hatred, not hatred, but my massive disliking of streaming comes forward. Because you're given this chance to see something. And, and it doesn't matter from an independent level to a mass-produced fucking Transformers movie. Or whatever lame-brain, massive comic book thing is going on right now. It's still some form of art. Before the show, we were discussing a guy that we've talked about a lot before, Lucifer Valentine. No matter what you do, no matter what it's deemed or or thought of or judged by people like us, people that review movies, uh, it's still a form of art some way or the other. You cannot say somebody's art isn't art. You can say that they claim it's a certain art that it isn't. That's fine. But you just can't discredit people. You can't take something like that and just throw it away. And it's, it's so hard streaming and having this in your home because you sit down and you're going to appreciate this piece of art. Then you get on Facebook and then you get on Instagram and then you start texting somebody. Then you check your email and then you have to go whatever – something about the theater forced you to appreciate it. It's like going to the opera. You had to dress up. You had to appear a certain way. You couldn't just fucking walk in the door. When this is gone, there's a level of of how you appreciate art that is gone. You know, it's like if just museums closed and you could never go see anything again. If theaters are gone, there's a certain level of how people appreciate and view and 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 let art into their life that is going to just just go away. And you'll always have that phone. You'll always have that bowl. You'll always have whatever to ignore the art you're watching. You know, I could have watched that movie, but I was texting blah, blah, blah. You're not going to sit at home and shut the fuck up and enjoy something. And I know like you, Alexander Nash, you're a very different person. You do. When you watch a film, you are watching a film. But most people don't take precedence to something like this most people don't think that film is, is any form of art outside of just sheer entertainment to them which even is going back into Vice Academy a massive problem because it's judged and thought of as either a nudie cutie or a soft court porn and it's just nah. there's not going to be anything in that as to where bizarrely there's substance there's much more substance in something like this than any of the fucking Sharknado movies which I you know I just I can't take that shit
0: well, I mean, it's just... It's different styles of entertainment, and my it's just... A... <laughs> it's about adaptability at this point, because there's not much to be done about any of it, really. You can like what you like, and you can do what you do, but as far as like any sort of control over what's happening, that's just... I mean a, a reference to like your screening of Easy Rider the reason that there weren't any people there is because what's the audience for Easy Rider they're all in their 60s and 70s that like that movement is done and like it hasn't been picked up by pop culture over the years so, like since then. But Night of Living Dead has been picked up by pop culture over and over. And each generation has picked up Night of Living Dead because of what it is and what its namesake is. Easy Rider it's not going to die. It's not like you won't ever be able to see Easy Rider again. But relevance in the public eye is not going to be what it once was just because of what it is.
1: So what do you think about rating wise? What's what's number one rated at? Vice Academy. Part one. Nineteen eighty. You, you want
0: actual ratings on these?
1: Let's go. We're we're a movie review show that actually never rates the movies that we do. We let's rate the Vice Academy
0: series. One is probably a two. Vice Academy wow. two is probably a two and a half. Yikes. Vice Academy three is probably a one and a half. Oh, I still, I mean, like, as far a as I'm feeling they're not very well made. And they're not like, it's, it's not like I'm going to give them a higher rating. Cult points, though, I can give them some better cult points than that. I maybe mean, maybe we should go with cult points. That was bad. One's a five, two's a five, three is uh, probably a four to a three. And each significant one after that will be less and less and less.
1: I'm going to go with four, five, and four. Cult points or uh, cold points. Uh, okay. rating? Cult points. Actual rating. I don't know if this is one of those things. I mean, we we go on long-winded rants about movies like Day of the Dead and give them five out of five stars. So there's a weird learning curve when it comes to Death by DVD because at the same time we've given really low ratings to like Terminator 2, very openly successful films. I, I'm going to give the first movie an actual two. I'll give it a straight two. Part two, I'm gonna give it a three point five.
0: Ooh, that's high.
1: I'm gonna. It's gonna be probably. I never give high ratings though. Everything's usually really down low for me. This is gonna be one of my highest probably for years. And part three, I'll give an equal two. All right. I guess I just enjoy uh, how goofy
0: part three goes. I like how connected it gets. Oh, I I enjoy the movies, but as films. They can be dog shit at times, so <laughs> I can't give them the a, like, a same rating as Taxi Driver.
1: Well, like I said, we compare so many things and do so many ratings on the show. I mean, I'm not trying to judge this in the same batch of movies that we would do the, the greatest hits of all time. You know, this is no sexy beast. This isn't up there with dead ringers, but at the same time, in its own right, I don't want to box it off and just give it a one. I just don't want to shit on it. I mean, it's not a matter of even shitting on it. It's It's got a lot of bizarre integrity. I keep referencing that and saying it, but as you watch it and you get into the series, it's almost bothersome how much effort was put into these characters and the development of what is going on with the story. But after part three, there I don't feel that it's a connecting sort of thing. You know, you had one through three which connects the entire story and it's a shame Linnea wasn't available or couldn't do part three or it was below her abilities or whatever the fuck the story is being able to return everybody and doing just a a perfect one through three series would have been great. I got nothing else, man. So I guess we vice Academy now. I personally feel that I know enough to be a cop right now. Like, I mean, I think I could like be the police chief
0: considering, uh, that the, uh, police procedurals in any of these films are, so not even close to being correct what actual law is. I'd say you're completely not anywhere close to being a police officer.
1: Yeah, no cops randomly shoot black children in this film series, so I guess it really isn't accurate to American police. I don't know anything. Maybe I'll learn. I mean, get me some Budweiser and put on that song from Dawn of the Dead. Cause I'm a man. Do, 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 do. You know, maybe I'll feel more motivated. <laughs> that was a bad joke. All these shows end with awful jokes. I guess this is the end, though. Yeah, Vice Academy 1 day through day 3
0: 3. Hey! <laughs> Don't get home too late at
1: night. Don't believe in overworking. And I never treat a woman right. Cause I'm a
0: man. Cause I'm a man. I like to be the center of attraction Let
1: the people know just who I am Like my movie shows with lots of action Take my fear straight from the camp Cause I'm a man Cause I'm a man I'm not the type for sex in a town in a family Just give me a room with music and dice Although oh, I am a gambling fan Smoke the cigarettes I'm
0: Recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced.
1: The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.